she goes. Okay, I'm going to pray. I'm going to open up God's word. See where we get. Father, thank you for the Bible. Thank you for giving us uh, a revelation of yourself in Jesus Christ. Thank you for the faithful people that wrote down what they saw and heard. Thank you for inspiring them by your spirit. Thank you that we have this record that never changes and it represents your never-changing character, Lord. We thank you for that. As we get into it now, even though it never changes and it's always the same, we pray that it would live in our hearts, that your word would live in our hearts and that we will be changed. Please, Lord, bring life change here today, I pray. Just ask that, Lord, that it would be your word that, that is uh, unleashed, your truth that is unleashed, that it wouldn't be the words of man, but we pray something of the words of God to be coming through, bringing, bringing the changes, please. Let Holy Spirit, pray for your anointing to rest on me, rest on uh, all of us here, to hear what you're saying and to be, uh, to be moved upon by you, that we would encounter you in some way through the word, please. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're working through the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to be in it until around November. So, and we've been in it for a few months now. And that's basically Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, if you're not familiar uh, with that. And we've come to the most difficult part in the sermon to understand. So, <clears throat> you're going to have to engage your brain somewhat. There are elements to it that I don't understand, and I'm going to just steer clear from them. Uh, I've racked my brains, I've prayed, I've read, and some of the points you get into in such depth, you think, I'm just, I've lost the plot here. So you have to then go back in reverse and look at the broad sweep again. I'm going to bring the broad sweep to you. Um, it may leave you with one or two questions, particularly those of you that are more, how can I put it, theologically wired. You know, you love a bit of theology and you, you, you may be thinking, well, how does that work? That's fine. I'm happy to talk with you about it, but I'm not going to promise all the answers. Um, because this, this one is, a, is, in light of lots of other scriptures, quite difficult to understand. And it's a bit of an intersection in the message whereby up till now Jesus has been saying, this is what a Christian is. He's not been given any commands, really. He's just been saying, this is what the only command he's given so far is don't hide your light. He said, you're the light of the world, don't hide it. Other than that, he's just been saying, this is who you are. You're the salt of the earth. Disciples, believers, Christians, you're the ones who stop the earth going mouldy. You're the ones who preserve uh, the system which in and of itself just gets more and more rotten. You're the light of the world. You shine in the darkness. Blessed are the poor in spirit. A believer is one who is poor in spirit, one who has come to the end of himself. And he's no longer trying to lean on his own sense of, well, I've been to church. Well, you know, I've prayed a bit. Well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. The believer, the true believer has come to the end of all of that and has realized his desperate need for forgiveness, for salvation, for the Lord Jesus. Blessed are those who mourn. A believer is one who knows what it is to mourn his own sin, to really feel in the depth of his heart that gutted feeling you realize those things you've said and done, haven't said, haven't done, have grieved the heart of God. You've offended a holy God and you feel it. Blessed are those who mourn. They will be comforted. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who realise they're not the centre of the universe. They've come to that big and very important revelation that it's not all about me. It's all about him. This is what a believer is. After this week, we're going to get onto some very clear instruction, teaching how to live. But this... As ever in the New Testament, it's always identity first, then lifestyle. 
when you go lifestyle first, it always goes wrong. If you just start hammering on at someone, you should be doing this, you should be doing that, you just produce Pharisees, you produce people who are moralists, people who are very aware of what they do and what they don't do and how they're better than so-and-so and how they're not like those people, but really they have no genuine love for the Lord, no sense of wonder at the mercy they've been shown, they're just self-righteous. That's what happens if you just preach morals, you just preach do, don't, and you see it in a lot of churches and it produces either rebels or Pharisees. Horrible scene. And then some people end up hating the church because all they're around is either self-righteousness or people living double lives. Well, it's not surprising that people would get somewhat disillusioned with the church if it's like that. So what's identity first? God, by his grace, has made you this. You are brand new by his grace. He's taken out your heart of stone. He's put in a heart of flesh. You are not what you were by his action. Jesus died for you when you were against him because he loves you and wants to win you. He has made you brand new through nothing of your own doing. It's glorious. Out of an understanding, a rich and strong and robust understanding of that, you can begin to grapple with lifestyle issues. Okay, in light of who I now am, how should I live? In light of what what God has made me, what should I and shouldn't I do? And it's no longer that thing where you're doing stuff but really wishing you could be doing the naughty stuff. You know? Horrible, isn't it? People that are trying to, they're doing the good stuff but really they're wishing they could be doing the naughty stuff and the way they talk sounds like that. You know, I'm sorry, I can't come out and get drunk. I'd love to, but I'm doing that church stuff now. And it's just so unglorifying to God. Rather than saying, come out and get drunk. I've got the Holy Spirit. Why would I want to do that? That's New Testament talk, yeah? So, we've done the identity. Next week onwards, instruction, rooted in identity. This week, a kind of a theological intersection. Let's read together. Matthew 5, verse 17. Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, Jesus says. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota. That's the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Not a dot, that's like a serif. Will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. We're going to go a verse at a time. There's four main statements. First one, verse 17. I don't know whether the PowerPoint is ready. So we're going to, fo- we're going to just bed down on these four statements. Um, the first two are about Jesus and the law. The second two, Christians and the law. And, and although it's scholarly and theological, don't think, oh, there's no point. There is a massive point. Your understanding of Jesus and the law will affect your whole understanding of how to walk the walk. Your understanding of you as a Christian, if you're a Christian, and the law is huge. If you're not a Christian, you need to know this stuff. Because so many people that aren't Christians, but are thinking about becoming Christians, think it's about following a load of rules. And there's something appealing about it, but there's something very unappealing about it. And people are kind of like, mm, mm, no. So you've got to get your head around, how does it work with the law? How does it work with Jesus? How does it work with the Ten Commandments? How, I mean, why, why do the Christians have the Old Testament, that big old lump, that lump there, which is all pre-Jesus? Why do we have that in our Bible? Most of us aren't Jews. 
are we? Most of us can't trace our lineage back to Abraham. So why do we have that? And why do we encourage Christians to read it as if it's their scriptures? You've got to understand these things. Why do we say it's ours? What did Jesus come to do? We've got to have some grasp of it. Otherwise, we're likely to go wrong in the way that we think and therefore the way that we live our lives. So verse 17, do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. First, Jesus says, do not think. Why? Because Jesus loves to get people thinking. Don't come here to just say, feed me. Tell me what to think. Okay, I now think this. That is not glorifying to Christ. I will try my best to speak from the word of God and then please think. The best thing you can do with your life is to learn how to think for yourself biblically. It's a very important phrase. If you just think biblically, then basically people end up just, oh, pastor said it, I believe it. If you just think for yourself, you've got no compass, no foundation. But to think for yourself biblically is great. Please set yourselves to do that for the rest of your life. Okay? Jesus says, do not think this. Do not think what? Do not think that I came to do away with the law and the prophets. When he's talking about that, he's talking about the whole of the Old Testament. It's all either law or prophets. So he's saying, don't think, I have come to do away with all that other stuff. Moses, Abraham, Adam and Eve, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea. Don't think I'm just doing some brand new thing which is starting now. Now why did he say that? Here's why. Because people were looking at him thinking, you are very different. We've got these scribes and we've got these Pharisees and they teach the law and they know all about Moses' laws and they know them off by heart and they meditate on them the whole time and it's all they ever talk about. And you've come along and you're acting like a rabbi. You're calling people to come and follow you. You're letting people call you rabbi. You're teaching in the synagogues. But you are so different. Are you connected with that thing or are you doing something brand new? And Jesus wants them to know. He says, don't think I came to just do away with that. I didn't come to do away with it. I came to fulfill it. Despite my unorthodox, in fact, unique style, I'm connected with that. And I want to show you what it really means. I want to show you what it's really about. I'm not breaking with the old. John Stott says this, The attitude of Jesus to the Old Testament was not one of destruction and discontinuity, but rather of a constructive, organic continuity. So people were thinking, this guy, he's something brand new. And Jesus said, no, I'm not. I am part of a very long tradition. I'm not just ethnically joined as a Jew. I am part of this whole history that God has been doing here. Jesus came to fulfill the law. How? Well, there's three main kinds of law. The ceremonial, which was the kind of offerings and the, um, the, uh, the priesthood and all that kind of stuff, your sacrifices and offerings, the ceremonial. Then there was the judicial, which was basically, you know, the kind of the rules for like, kind of, I don't know, what happens if, you're, you know, if your donkey kind of runs into someone's field and you go and, you go and straighten it out. And what happens if, the, if someone falls off the roof of your house because they were flat in those days and there was no balcony? fitted around it, what we're going to do. The judicial law, how, how, the dietary things, what food is okay, what food isn't okay. This was the judicial law for the Jews. Okay? Then there was the moral law, the Ten Commandments. Jesus is saying, I've come to fulfill all of that. What? So how? Well, let's just dig in and look quickly. How did he fulfill the ceremonial law? Well, in this sense, all of the offerings and all of the sacrifices were pointing towards him. 
people weren't forgiven in the Old Testament because the lamb was good enough. It doesn't work to say in the old days it was, you know, you did something wrong, a lamb did the trick. Nowadays it's Jesus. No. That's not how it works. Why did they sacrifice the lamb? Because it was a pointer towards the lamb. So when John the Baptist sees Jesus, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He, when he said that, they would all be thinking, oh, oh, the Lamb, oh, that's what we sacrifice. Yes, that's what's going on there. So when God is forgiving the Jews because the Lamb is being killed, it is the aroma that is reminding God of what is going to happen. You understand that? It's quite strange to be reminded of something in the future. Okay? It's unusual, okay? But God smells the aroma of the lamb. It reminds him of what his son will do. And so the lamb, all the different sacrifices were pointing to Christ and were fulfilled in him, which is why as Christians, we don't do that. Have you noticed we don't do that stuff? Have you noticed? Yeah? That's as bloody as it gets. Okay? We don't come into this oh, lamb under the arm. Hey, guys, we don't. Have you noticed? Have you ever thought through why? Have you said, well, we don't do it now. We're modern now. No. Oh, Jesus has stopped that now. No. So Jesus done away with it. Jesus fulfilled it. Okay? He is what it was all about, what it was all pointing to. Hence, when he's on the cross and he cries out, it is finished. And we're told the, temp- the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What's going on there? Well, in the temple, that which represented the ceremonial aspect of things, where the presence of the Holy One dwelt, the curtain separated the people from the most holy place. So when the curtain is torn in two from top to bottom, that's important, is God saying, on my initiative, I am breaking down the barriers between you and me. How? Through the body of Christ and his death. See, that's the deal. This is why the the temple in Jerusalem that was destroyed by the Romans in AD 70, you know what? They can't do the sacrifices anymore since then. They'd better jolly well hope someone's come along to fulfil it because you can't, you can't, you had to do it in the temple. It's not there anymore. It's not been there for almost 2,000 years. The whole thing has been fulfilled in Christ. Then there is, oh, and, and Jesus, one good scripture to bear in mind on this, Jesus talking to the woman at the well, and she's saying, well, we know about you Jews, you worship there and we worship here. He said, a time is coming when we're neither going to worship in Jerusalem or on this mountain, for the Father's looking for those who are worshiping in spirit and in truth, and that hour is here. He's introduced something totally new now, where we don't have to go to Jerusalem or have a pilgrimage here or there, where by the blood, by the death of Christ, God has given him all authority over heaven and on earth and wherever the people of God pitch up in the name of Jesus, it becomes a holy place. Okay? So it's not like, oh, we're not in Jerusalem. It's not like it's going to, you know. Some people say, I'm going to go, I'm going to be baptised in, in, in the Jordan. Cool. So what, is that like a double baptism or something? Is that like really like, you're really, really baptised if you're baptised in the Jordan? What is that? I'm going to Jerusalem, don't you know? Well, cool. I would like to go because I'd love to see the sights and I'd love to, out of interest. But it's not kind of like if I go to Jerusalem. It's not like going to Mecca for a Muslim. That's what you're thinking. You've, you, you've, you've missed it. If you've got that kind of mentality, Jerusalem. The heavenly Jerusalem coming down like a bride out of heaven to the church. Revelation 20, 21. Okay? So you mustn't get into that thing of I spoke to someone once, I'm going, I'm going to, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to Israel, I have to get baptised. I wasn't even a believer. I wasn't even a believer. What, what superstition. 
That's, that is superstition. Listen, Jesus has done away with all of that. Okay, the judicial. The judicial. So the rules for Israel living where they lived in that time. How did Jesus fulfill that? Well, Jesus is Israel. When Jesus said, I'm the true vine, we think, oh, that's a lovely image. It's a true vine and we're like branches and we just stick in there and we're really close. Yes, but it's actually in its context a lot more than that because all through history, God is talking about Israel as his vineyard. And he's saying, I, I, I planted you, I protected you, I put a wall around about you, but you didn't produce any fruit. And, uh, and I've watered you and I've tended you, and I, but there's still no fruit. What's going on here? And it's God's heart breaking over Israel over the centuries, going after other gods, being unfaithful. And then comes the true Israel, the true Israelite, Jesus. Which is why he has 40 days in the wilderness, just like Israel's 40 years in the wilderness. He's saying, I'm fulfilling all that was pointed to, I am Israel. And when he says, I'm the true vine, the, and if you abide in me, you will bear fruit. I'm the fruitful vine. Yeah? So the, the whole thing of the nation of Israel gets fulfilled in Jesus. And Jesus now determines what Israel is. And Israel is the church. So in the Old Testament, it talks about Israel, you're a royal priesthood, a, a holy nation. Well, you go then to 1 Peter, he says exactly the same thing to the church. Lifts it, cuts and pastes it out of the Old Testament into the New. He's saying this applies to the church. If the church is the people of God. The, the Bible says he breaks down the wall between Jew and Gentile in his body at the cross. Every, every dividing wall between people, Jew and Gentile, old and young, male and female, ginger and non-ginger, every dividing wall between people, he breaks down and makes one in Christ. Hallelujah, Foxy. Yes. It's the gospel. It's the, see, it's not just like, oh, those Christians, you know, there's all different, different ages, different, kind of, different male and female, you know, different, different races. Isn't it like a really great vibe? There must be really amazing people. It's the gospel. The gospel does it. When, when the barrier is broken, the barrier between us and God is broken down by the cross, when we get to realise, oh, do you know what? All this falling out and stroppiness and silly ideas about those kinds of people is all down to the fact I'm a rotten sinner. And Jesus deals with my sin at the cross so I can be made brand new and I can be reconciled to God. I can start a brand new life where I'm no longer under those crazy walls and barriers and divides and prejudices and attitudes. Jesus crushes it at the cross and makes a brand new humanity as the second Adam. It's glorious, isn't it? Glorious, glorious stuff. And Jesus says some amazing things. So if you read Matthew 8, 11 and 12, just to show you that I am speaking the truth, he says... I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom, that's the Jews, will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's not saying Jews, there won't be any Jews that are saved, but he's saying that this thing that up to this point has been like a Jewish thing, there's something brand new coming there in the kingdom where those from the east and the west will come and gather with Abraham, those of faith. And some of those who have been stand, resting on their laurels of, well, I'm related to Abraham, don't you know? But really don't, there's, not, there's no real faith there, will be cast out. And then perhaps even more radically in Matthew 21, verse 43, Jesus says this. I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its roots. How about that? 
It will be taken away. See, it's talking to the Jews. It will be taken from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Who are those? Those who abide in the vine. The fruitful vine. So it goes out of an ethnic thing and into something multi-ethnic and glorious and global. It's a very amazing thing. And Jesus, Jesus says all this stuff about what food can I eat, what food can't I eat. We're going to stop all of that. It's no longer going to be focused on kind of what goes in and, and dietary cleanliness. It's now going to be about cleanliness of heart. We're going to bring this thing right through to the heart of the thing. And he, he, he tackles this in Mark 7. He says some very amazing things where Jesus says, um, which just gives a very insightful comment on, you know, just life, but makes a huge point out of it. Um, in Mark 14, um, sorry, Mark 7, verse 14, Jesus says, um, He called the people to him again and he said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, i.e. pork, yeah, or any other thing that was forbidden. It can't defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Are you also without understanding? Don't you see, whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. He goes to the toilet. He's just making a very obvious point. How can that make that person clean? They eat it and then they go to the toilet and it comes out. It's not affected their character. They're standing before God in any way at all. Thus he declared all foods clean. There it is. If you're here as a believer and you're funny about the pork thing or you're funny about this or that, listen, thus he declared all foods clean. There it is. It's the new nation. It's the church. We're not under that old thing. It's different. Jesus has brought it through. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. From from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. So there's the ceremonial, the judicial, where Israel becomes the church now and we don't live under those old things, no longer circumcision, it's circumcision of the heart now, being born again, okay? It's a change. And then we have the moral. So the Ten Commandments, which sum up all of the kind of moral commandments of God. How does this work? How did Jesus fulfill these commandments? Well, he is the only one to have ever lived perfectly obeying the law, not just in action but in spirit. Jesus did not break the law at all. When we talk about Jesus being perfect and not sinning, we are saying he kept God's law. That's what we're saying. Not just in his actions, but in his mind. and his, In every way, he perfectly kept God's law. And as a result, he was justified by works. That means God declared him righteous by who he is and what he did. That is true of no other human who has ever lived or who will ever live. They can stand before God on, their own, on the basis of who they are in and of themselves and God declared them righteous. Only Christ. Only Christ gets that. Only Jesus. And then he fulfilled the flip side of the law, which is curse. So blessing there for righteousness and then curse through sin. How so? He became sin on the cross. On the cross, it was as if he was the worst lawbreaker you could ever imagine, which is why the Bible says God made him who knew no sin become sin. He became so vile. He became, on the cross, he was a murderer in that sense. On the cross, he was a paedophile. On the cross, everything vile and disgusting you can think of, he became it. He became abhorrent. 
That's why he cried out, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he'd become a massive sin from the inside out. All of your sins, all of your and my vile thoughts, disgusting, gross uh, dreams and fantasies, uh, horrible attitudes, all of the filth you've ever thought, said or done for anyone who's ever lived was concentrated in that beautiful man. Over those hours. It says at noon the sky went dark. It was a horrific moment. Even nature itself couldn't fathom what was going on. It's Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the eternal one, fully God, fully man, became sin and made himself obedient to death on a cross. In doing so, he fully satisfies the wrath of God at all law breaking. He fulfills the law in its wonderful blessings and righteousness, and the horrors of curse, damnation, and judgment. Please don't think, if you're a Christian, you're forgiven, because God has somehow become more permissive, or God's just relaxed a bit these days, or you know what, God realised he was just being a bit, nothing of the sort. He's not changed at all. He's not changed at all. But he is satisfied with the death of Christ. That is why you're not condemned. That is why you can come into his presence and sing and not be blown up. That's why. It's not because he's nice. He's wonderful. He is love. He is holy. To come into his presence as we do without doing all these other things. Why all the washings of the past? Why all that process? It was to demonstrate how far away we are. How different he is. And then God has met every condition in Christ and completely fulfilled the law isn't he good verse 18 for truly I say to you until heaven and earth pass away not an iota not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished here what Jesus is doing he's saying get your thinking straight it's not that like I said a minute ago God's just had a second thoughts it's not that God's just eased up it's not that God's realised, you know, in the old days, you know, things were just kind of like that, kind of things were a bit more ancient, you know, and blood, and now people are kind of, you know, it's more civilised, so he's kind of moved with that. You, you, people suggest such things. It's nothing of the sort. It's nothing of the sort. God's standard has not changed. Sin still arouses his fury and wrath in the same way. Judgment will come and it will be unlike anything we can imagine in its wonder and in its horror. In its wonder in the sense that every wrong will be righted. In its horror in the sense that we are perpetrators as well as victims. And only as you are hidden in Christ and covered by his blood, the blood of the Passover lamb, will you escape the judgment. That's the reality of these things. We've got to understand that. It's very important that we get that. The law hasn't died. The law has not died. The law has been fulfilled in Christ. And where it was like we were married to the law, in the sense Romans 7, Paul talks, it says it's a bit like we're married to the law, and it's like being married to this husband who is perfect and demands perfection and will do nothing to help. That's what it's like, he said. Wives, imagine that. It's what Davina has to put up with every day. Joke. A husband who, dema- who is perfect, demands perfection, and doesn't lift a finger to help. That's the law. The law is perfect. When God gives these laws, they're, per- they're beautiful. 
The only problem is, is that the law says to sinful people, now you do it. And we go, don't want to. Why? Because of the sin in me. And then we see this is God's standard. This is who I am. I need help. And the Lord just says, no, perform. What do you do? And Paul goes on in the illustration in Romans 7. And he's like, he said, like, he you can't just divorce the law. That makes you an adulteress. You can't do that. So what then? What the Lord, not only that, it's an eternal husband. It's an eternal husband, right? So you're married to this husband who's perfect, demands perfection, won't lift a finger to help, and he's never going to die. He's never, you're never going to get that phone call. He's been run over. Yes. Ne- you're not going to get that phone call. It's never going to happen. Yeah? It's not going to happen. It's the, it's, he's there. And he remains there. And he comes back perfect again, demanding perfection. That's, Paul says that's what it's like being married to the law. Well, there's no solution. You can't say, oh, blow that. I'm going to go and get married to someone else. No, you adulterous. You're even more condemned. Oh, no. What can I do? You die. You die to the law. And are born again. And you get to marry a brand new husband, Jesus, who is perfect and who does demand perfection and has been the unperfection that he demands. And welcomes you by his grace into relationship with him so that you can bear fruit. And fills you with his spirit so that you can walk in a way that is pleasing with him. It's lovely, isn't it? So it's not, oh, that law, that's all done. No, it's been fulfilled in Christ. All the demands are fulfilled in Christ. And you get to die to that relationship of, ah, and be born again into a relationship with Christ where you can bear fruit. Verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, bear in mind, Jesus is just about to go on to some commands. And so, so he's just about to do the latter. He's just about to teach some. And, well, he obviously does them and teach them. Now, what does this mean? Does this mean that we should preach law all the time? Preach, thou shalt, thou shalt. No, we, we shouldn't preach. What does it mean? What, what is it saying? It means we need to establish, first of all, what it is to be saved by grace, which I've just been preaching to you for the past however long, okay? That you get saved by nothing you do, but by everything that he has done. And then you preach regeneration in Christ, brand new heart, which wants to please him, okay? In the old days, under the old dispensation, there was a tablet of stone external to you with the commands on, and everything in you said, no, no, don't want to, no thanks, Okay, indwelling sin. When you're born again, you get a new heart, and the Bible says inscribed on the heart are the laws of God. So in your deepest place, you think, yes, Lord, yes. And though you still have indwelling sin and have to battle it, your deepest desire, if you're born again, is to please him. His laws are written on your heart. It's a miracle. You become a walking miracle. It's a beautiful thing. You see, you've established that, you've established that. Then you establish the power of the Holy Spirit. God says, I'm going to freely give you the Holy Spirit now so that the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, all those beautiful things will be manifested in you through being filled with the Spirit and through fellowshipping with God. Out of that, you are called to live an incredible life. Okay? Okay? So God justifies you, declares you righteous simply because you're in Christ. And God regenerates you, gives you a brand new heart that beats to all the things that he loves. And he fills you with the Holy Spirit so you have the power to live. And then he says, let's go and do some amazing things. 
And that kind of life will outstrip anything the law could ever have produced. So we don't gather every Sunday and say, right, today's command is, thou shalt not lie. Do not lie! Some of you have been lying. Some of you have been lying. Stop. Let's pray. Break bread. We don't do that. We don't do that. That's old covenant. We proclaim Christ, what he has done, what he has made us, the truth of this incredible gospel. And then we say something like this, the God of truth lives inside of you now. The God who is truth has made you brand new. Your deepest desire now is to be totally honest to the glory of God. Live out who you are. Be what God has made you. To lie is to live a lie. To lie is not to be... You see, you preach the new covenant. You preach the grace. So yeah, you bet we don't relax any of that stuff. We don't say, you know what, guys? We're, we're under grace. See, the, other, the, other, the other extreme is this. We're under grace, guys, so what the heck? Do what you like. Don't matter anymore. Under grace. That comes a little catchphrase, yeah? You sit in, but you get your little, your little tag, your little key ring out. Under grace, yeah? And it, what you do is you pit holiness against grace as if they're different things. As if God's plan was, I'm going to send my son so they might be saved by grace. Then they can spend their whole life in terrible sin. What, is that the plan of God? No. I only give my only son to pry out his life. Why? So that a bride, beautiful, glorious, without spot or blemish, might be produced. One that will be a, a good match for my beautiful, perfect son. See, that is God's plan in grace. Producing holiness that the law could never produce because of our sin. So God makes us brand new. And then, but the, the, bar, the bar for the Christian life in terms of what is God after? What does Jesus say? Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So it's not like, oh, the one those grace churches, great, we can just go there and kind of like do what we like and no one's going to say anything. We will. We will say things. We'll correct you. We'll rebuke you. We will. As I hope you do to me if you see it in me. If you see me just kind of being a hypocrite, living a double life, I really hope, please, please do. There's things about me that just you think, that's not Christ-like. Please say something. Please say something. I won't be defensive. I won't jump. I'll take it. I'll consider. I'll reflect. I'll get back to you. you know. And, or if I'm convicted in the moment, I'll just say, mate, you're right. I'm just sorry. I'll get right. We must. It's really important. Why? Because we want to be great in the kingdom, don't we? Yeah, I don't want to be least in the kingdom. There is a good, godly ambition we should have to be great in the kingdom. Okay, it's a, it's a good thing. Finally, verse 20. I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you won't even enter. So forget greatness and leastness now. It's like, you're not, you're not even going to get in if you're not more righteous than these guys. Now, we've got to... Because that can make you think, oh, flip, you know, because these guys were serious. They were all about the Bible. You want to talk about devotional times? These guys would put you to shame. You would look embarrassingly slack next to a scribe or a Pharisee, most of you, me. We would. These guys, I mean, they didn't just have the Lord. They added out another few hundred just to make sure. Just to be on the safe side, you know. They had every base covered. So Jesus says, you need... Now, is Jesus, so is Jesus there talking about the righteousness he gives us as a gift? Because then that kind of answers it. But actually, I don't think it really fits with the, um, with the context. The sermon's not about that, really. The sermon's about the way you live your life. 
So he's talking about the way you live. If the way you live does not exceed that, then you'll never enter the kingdom. So you think, how does that work? What, what, you see, Jesus got beyond the amount of hours the scribes spent in the Bible. He got to the heart of, why are you doing that? Why are you spending so long in the Bible? He got to the heart of the thing. And you know what? Jesus exposed the scribes and the Pharisees. Here's what was wrong with their religion. Number one, it's all about externals. It was all about outward appearances. They love to go into like their meetings and have the seat at the front and people say, oh, well done, you know, oh, hello, Rabbi. They loved it. They, for them, it kind of, oh, yeah, it was like their fuel. It was their, it was their food. Is that you? Do you love a title? Do you love that? Do you love it when you, you get a bit of promotion and people know you're that now and you, you know, you put the old name on the door there and just, just put the letters in front of it or the letters after it? Is that, do, you love, do you love the people to kind of know about all of your accomplishments and kind of treat you in, in accordance with that? Careful. Especially around religious stuff. You know, you love, oh yeah, I'm on the prayer team now. You know, just, you know how it is when the Lord raises you up. You know, careful. <laughs> careful. Watch that. Watch, it's subtle. They've been at the old 24-7 prayer lately. Yeah, had a bit of a night watch. Lonely in there. Not many others. The Lord was there. Careful. Careful. Don't go, don't do it. See, Jesus, watch those, the way they pray. They just want to be heard for their long and fancy prayers. Careful. It's about externals, you see. Also, it was about an emphasis on the ceremonial. It was a kind of emphasise, you know, they would kind of, it was like, you know, Jesus would heal someone who had like a really nasty withered hand. Jesus would do this amazing miracle. So his hand worked again. You think, hey, you know, what should you be doing at that point? You should be dancing around the room. And they're going, mm, well, it's the Sabbath though. Can you wait till tomorrow? You think, what has happened? They've got into this such a religious mindset, they've forgotten justice and mercy. They've forgotten compassion. It's, it's not there anymore. Why? Because they're fixated. And Jesus said, you strain out gnats and swallow camels. Oh, we get that little thing out of the way, little thing, and then, it's, it's meant to be a joke. Jesus meant it as a joke. It's a very funny, it's, it's, it's like when he says, you know, don't try and get the splinter out of someone's eye when you've got a log in your own. It's humorous. It's a funny picture. But Jesus is saying, that is how ridiculous you are, scribes and Pharisees. Not only that, they made up a load of man-made rules at the expense of God's commandments. So God would say, honour your mother and father, and they would say, well, mum and dad, the thing I was going to give to you, uh, it's Corban, which they made up this kind of thing called Corban, which was this thing, you know, they would, they, it was basically a way of them not honouring their mum and dad, but they gave it a religious word, yeah? You understand mum and dad, it's a spiritual thing, it's a God thing. And so I can't honour you with that, because I've got to put it aside for this or for that. And they found ways of getting around the things that God loved and spiritualising it. And God says it's terrible. It's terrible. And the final thing was this incredible self-concern. They were, they were just so aware of themselves and their, and their righteousness. And how they, and they, oh look, Jesus is hanging around with those types. They're different from us. I'm in this category. They're hanging around with the sinners and the lawbreakers and the tax gatherers and the prostitutes. Why is he with them? Oh, why is Jesus letting that woman wash his feet? Surely he knows what kind of person she is. See, they're saying, I'm, not, I'm in a different category. I'm not like that. They're so self-aware, so aware of their own righteousness, of how long they've prayed, of how much time they've spent in the Bible. They've lost sight of loving him and loving their neighbour. They've just lost sight of him. It's terrible. It's a terrible thing. They've just lost sight. They're just so self-consumed. Beware. 
beware. Because as evangelicals, and that means those who take the Bible as God's word and really honour it, we are in most danger of becoming Pharisees more than any other group. We really are. Well, we're not like those liberals, not like those people who fudge this and fudge that issue and, and you just end up creating this thing and you think, well, we've got, yeah, because we're the ones and it's like, you know what? Be careful. Let's not let that happen. Let's not let that happen. Let's always, always, no matter what amazing things God by his grace enables us to do over the years, and I hope he does, and I hope for incredible stuff, don't you? We want to do, of course we do, we want to see incredible things happen and all of that. And there's things being put in place now, I think they're going to lead to incredible fruitfulness in the future. And that's wonderful, but it always comes back to him. And one of the reasons we break bread and take the wine every week, it's not just that he said when you gather, do it, that's the main reason. But I think as a result of just honouring him in that and doing that, it's been so healthy for us as a church. Because it means we always, always get to the cross in a very meaningful way. And we remember why it is we're here. We are here because he had mercy. That's why we're here. And we know him because he reached out to us when we were running in the opposite direction. He opened our eyes. He gave, didn't he? He opened our eyes. We were blind. He brought us out of the tomb. We were dead. We find ourselves alive to God by his mercy. By his mercy. And... uh, I want you to, I mean, we've covered some big theological stuff today and it's not been, an, you know, it's been a quite a meaty one, but I think it's important that we grasp this stuff because it keeps us in a place of real gratitude and real humility before him. But we've still got some time, so maybe the band could come up. As they're doing so, maybe you are here and you, you, you know, either you know the Lord in the sense that you prayed a prayer, you know, there was a time where you prayed a prayer and you said, Lord, I want to follow you, but let's be honest, you're not, you're not walking with him. And I'm not saying that, I'm, by that, I'm not saying that life isn't perfect, right? Walking with Jesus is messy. Anyone say amen to that? I was thinking about this one, walk, walking around having to pray this morning, I was thinking to myself, man, there's that, I don't understand that, I can't piece that thing together, what about that? And you know, and I'm so, still so aware of, I stumble in so many ways, and yet I can see, I must be walking with Jesus because he's really led me over the years. Do you know what I mean? There's no way I'm here and doing this by my own cleverness. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Right? It's the grace of God. It is the grace of God. So, yeah, so I'm walking with him. I know that. Some of you, you can't, you can't put your hand on your heart and say, I'm walking with him. And it might be that you prayed a prayer and that you are born anew. And you do know that, but it's, you know, there's just like that sense in which you're saying, oh, I don't know that I am. And it may be that you never have. You know, you never, but you want to. I want to give opportunity for you today to say, I want to come to the cross. Come to Christ, the crucified one, the king of glory, and say, Jesus, I, I want to follow you. Which, which means oh, everything I've been talking about today. It's totally radical, totally revolutionary. Will it cost you this? Probably, okay? Probably, okay? It's the lot, it's the works, it's everything, okay? But it's just, it's life to the full. All right, it's life to the full. It really is. It's gutsy. It's, it's, sometimes it's messy. Sometimes it's confusing. But it is glorious. Okay, it is glorious. And so I just want to have a moment because I just think maybe for some of you is, there's a time for you to say, yeah, I want to I do that. I want to come and I know what I'm doing and it's the big deal and it's either that you're straightening out 
You do know him, but you've not walked with him. But you've never walked, never walked with him. And you say, oh, I want to walk with him. And I want to just ask the band just to have a bit of a play for a minute. I'm going to give a couple of minutes for you guys to get to the table first before we start a song or anything. And it's your way of saying, Jesus, I'm coming to you. You take the bread, you break it. Why do you break it? Because it reminds you of his body broken for you on the cross. You eat it and it's you saying, Jesus, I want to be with you. And you pick up the cup. Um, the wine is in the uh, paper cups. If you, for whatever reason, just, you, you know, you don't drink alcohol, then the see-through cups is juice. You take that and you say, Jesus, I'm, Jesus, I'm taking this because your blood was shed for me for the forgiveness of my sins. And I receive that, okay? So I want you... I want you guys to be able to do that first while we just wait on God for a minute, just in his presence, music playing. You just go and you do that. And then afterwards, we'll just come and see me or see someone you came with or, and we'll just pray together, strengthen you, answer any questions you've got. But I want to just give a moment for you to be able to do this while we are just in God's presence. So in, in the sense that some of you might think it kind of seems quite public and quite like a self-conscious thing and what would so-and-so think and all of that. So why is, why is the pastor making it like, why can't he just everyone close their eyes and I could just go... You know, why can't I just do that? Just kind of, you know, and, and put that. Why? Here's why. Here's why. I want to get you off to a great start. I want to get you off to a proper start. Paul says in Acts, we have not done this thing in a corner. Okay, this thing's going public. This is you starting off by saying, I'm in Christ before whoever wants to know. It's not some little hobby, some little side thing. I'm following him. He's a master. So maybe there's none here that applies to, but I, I feel in my spirit there is. So I'm going to give it just a few minutes of the band play for you to just come up, take the bread and the wine, then go back to your seat and join us in worshiping him and we'll pray together at the end. And I'll, for the rest of us, after a few minutes, I'll get up and I'll just lead us through and we'll start a song. But let's just give it a few minutes and just let the Lord do what he does and let's let him just work. So Lord, we honor you here. Holy Spirit, we just bless you for your presence here. And uh, you know the ones that you are uh, pursuing today, Lord, as that good shepherd coming to find those that are lost. And we just say, Lord, in your mercy, would you surround them, would you envelop them with one of your, those big old shepherd's cuddles that you do and just let them know, Lord, that you've found them and that you love them and that you're calling them to yourself. And Lord, give them whatever they need, whether it's the grace or the boldness or the humility to come to you, take that bread and wine and say, I'm following Christ. So Lord, we, Spirit of God, we just give you free reign to work on the hearts, do what you do over these minutes and we just thank you, Lord. Let's, be, let's enjoy his presence.
20 minutes or so where we can respond to the word and take the bread and the wine, sing some more songs, exercise spiritual gifts. As I was sitting there, I felt the Holy Spirit speak to me about maybe one or two here who there's a bit of a double life thing going on, but you're so used to doing it that your conscience isn't actually troubling you anymore. And so you're coming to the conclusion that it's okay. Well, what's actually happened is, is that your conscience is seared. You've disobeyed your conscience so many times that it's no longer working properly. And um, I just want to pray the Holy Spirit would have mercy on you in there and would just soften that up again just so you can see the reality of what's going on and get right with God. Because if you want to know what is right and what is wrong, that the Ten Commandments are a brilliant gauge for that. Because sometimes we do something that is against God's law and we don't feel any conviction. So we assume maybe it's okay. <laughs> doesn't mean it's okay, it means that our heart is not soft and aligned as it should be. So Lord, I just pray for whoever that might be. And Lord, we just pray that you, you would just bring a merciful sense of conviction, Lord, so that that person can get right with you and really enjoy the wonder of walking with you and that whole, with a pure heart and just really, really being what they say they are on the tin, you know, the, the thing lining up. I pray, Lord, that that would be we established, please, for your mercy, for your glory, Lord. Have mercy, we pray. Amen. Amen. Why don't we stand? And, um, bread and wine is a great moment to recognise that we're part of one body. So please take the bread and wine in community. Pray with one another. Encourage one another. Let's, let's use this time to really do that. And um, don't feel you have to do it all alone. Um, okay, great. Jesus, lover of my soul, an all-consuming fire is in your gaze. And Jesus, I want you to know, I won't follow you all my days. For no one else in history is like you. History itself belongs to you. And Alpha and Omega, you have loved And I will share eternity with you. It's all about you. This is for you. Your glory and your fame is not about me. As if you should do things my way, you alone are God, and I surrender.